0: Well, let's get ready to get into the Word today together. I'm so excited to be bringing the last message in this series we're calling More. As folks are finding their way back to a seat, uh, let me just mention a couple things quickly. Uh, One is our new members class. I know you heard an announcement already about New Life Sunday coming up, but in preparation for that, we have a new members class. So if you've been coming to the church here for a few months or... Maybe even longer than that. And boy, this is home to you. You feel like you're a part here and you're wondering, you know, what's the next step? And you're ready to just step in a little deeper. I wanna personally invite you to join me this Tuesday night and Friday night at 7 o'clock. We're gonna have our members' class and you'll hear a little bit of the theological foundation of the church and you'll hear some of the uh, beliefs and behaviors of the church. You'll hear a little bit of the story of where we're at and where God's taking us, and uh, I promise you this, it'll be a blessing to you, it'll be an encouragement, so if you want to be a part of that, I'd love for you to join me in that. And one more thing, just for the sake of reiteration, because I don't want anybody to miss this. Next Sunday, we've never done this before, next Sunday we're having a Kids Takeover service because it's Grandparents' Day, and uh, we know grandparents love their grandkids more than me, so... We want to bring the kids up front next Sunday. Uh, Listen, to all the grandparents, we want you to be here next weekend. If you have extended family, maybe doesn't attend this church, invite them to come. You know, this is Labor Day weekend, so extra bonus points for all of you that came this weekend. You guys are awesome. You came on Labor Day. Yeah. Yes, you really love Jesus. (laughs) But next weekend, we're going to officially kick off our fall quarter. It's going to be a kids takeover. We're launching a new series called Core Values, and we are super excited about it. So we want you to be a part of that. Do you have your Bible today? If you don't, there's one under the seat near you. Uh, I want you to take a Bible or your Bible or look off somebody's and stand to your feet with me today. Go to the book of Ephesians. I'm reading out of the NIV translation. If you have a different one, just look on the screen here for this verse. I want us to read a theme verse that we've adopted for this entire series. You know, one of the hopes, let me say this before we read our verse. One of the hopes in doing a series like this, uh, where we just take a book and, and just sit down in a book and walk through it systematically, is that my hope is that you would get a better grasp of the Word of God. You know, I I don't know about you individually, but a lot of times people can flip through the Bible, and and you see all these names, and uh, you don't know if it's a name or a place half the time, and you're not really sure what's in that book in the Bible. And my hope is that when you flip through Ephesians because of this series, you'll have a little bit of a grasp, a better understanding of what this book is about. Whether you've been here for all the services or whether you go back and watch them on Uh, YouTube or Facebook Live or download them on iTunes and just listen to what we've been saying out of this book. If, If I could boil it down to one sentence to say this is something that I want every believer in our church to understand about the book of Ephesians, it's this. God has done more for us through Christ than we realize. That's what I want you to think. Every time you open this book, Paul is saying God has done more. He's done more, and that's why we've taken Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 and 21 to be our theme. So I want you to read it with me. We're going to put it up on the screen here. Let's all read it out loud together. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. I want to pray towards that end while we're standing. Thank you, Lord, that today your desire is to do more than what we expected you would do. God, I don't know what needs are represented in this house. I don't know what people are going through or what burden they might be bearing, but God, we know that your heart and your desire is to not only meet the needs of your people, but to exceed their expectations. So God, today, by faith, we take the limits off. We declare today that nothing is impossible for them that believe. God, would you work in the situations that look like they couldn't be changed? God, would you do something supernaturally today through your spirit, by your power, in our hearts and in our lives? God, we submit ourselves to the authority of of your word. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 You can be seated. As I mentioned, the, the theme that I see in this text is God wants to do more. And we began with the first chapter of Ephesians, and the emphasis there is that God, through the gospel, has made a significant impact on our spiritual lives, Now, that's an understatement, but let me just read one of the verses to you. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That's why we celebrated communion today, because we have forgiveness of sins in Jesus. But there's more. And chapter 2 begins to tell us that not only are there spiritual implications that that we have a right standing and a right position before God, but through the gospel, God has given us a right standing and a right position with men. And so it says in chapter 2, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier wall, the dividing wall of hostility. This is what the gospel has done. The gospel has torn down racial uh, walls, racial barriers, ethnic barriers, gender and social class barriers. The gospel does that. He said you're all one in Christ. There used to be a select people and and some of you were not a part of the people of God, but now you are because of what the gospel has done. And then he goes on to say and in the church there's the Holy Spirit is giving out a diversity of gifts so that each one of us has a unique place and a unique expression of the grace of God to share and to complement and to strengthen the body of Christ. But there's more. And so then he goes on in chapter 4 and 5 to tell us that not only are there personal implications with our relationship with God, but there's implications with people and and with the unity in the church. And then he says there's moral implications and ethical implications of this gospel, and so he begins to tell us what we're to do as we walk out this faith, and we talked about this last Sunday, but I'm going to read these verses again out of chapter 4, verse 22 to 24 says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So he's saying, look, because of this gospel, there's some things in your life that you're going to need to start putting off, some old habits, some old patterns. You put those off, and you begin to put on the new life in Christ because we're on a journey here that God didn't just save us and write our name in a book in heaven. God is calling us to live as a glorious reflection of the sun every day. And we're not all there yet, but how many of you are glad you're not where you used to be? We're moving in that direction. That's what he's calling us to. But there's more. And so in the last part of the book to the Ephesians, Paul begins to talk about the implications of this gospel in the most intimate and personal relationships that you have. He begins to talk about the implications of the gospel in your home. And the first relationship that he talks about is marriage. How many of you would like for God to do more in your home? Amen. Amen. That wasn't a trick question. (laughs) Let me just back up and assure you, if God's doing it, it's for your good. Amen? Amen. It's for your good. He wants to do more in your life. Now, I got to pause here because I'm about to talk about marriage, and I got to recognize David and Rachel Stout. We got some newlyweds. Welcome back, guys. They just got married this past month in August. Awesome. Now, I want to share with you today... An outline that, that Paul gives for what it looks like to have the gospel invade your house, invade your home. If you have your Bibles, look with me there in Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to begin reading verse 22. We're just going to read some of this so that you, we can all get on the same train of thought before we start to unpack some of the text. Verse 22 says, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We'll stop right there for just a moment. Now let me just say the scriptures that I just read have been butchered and abused and taken out of context as much as any portion of scripture in all of the Bible. And so I want did you, I wanted you to hear those verses so that we can now back up from them and understand the context of what Paul is saying. Now, how many of you realize that when he wrote this letter and when all of the books of the Bible were written, they didn't write them with chapter and verse divisions? Those were added by scribes so that when I said, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, you could all find it. Aren't you glad that we have numbers, that we can find the same place today? We're not carrying a bundle of scrolls in here. We all know where we're at in the text, but... The danger is sometimes we allow those number divisions and those subheadings that are not inspired of the Holy Spirit to cause us to stop reading. I don't know about you, but when I write a letter, I don't number my sentences. I just flow from thought to thought. And that's what Paul did when he wrote this. And so a lot of times we miss the emphasis of the text if we we just pay attention too much to the chapter divisions and the sentence and the verse divisions. So what you have to understand about this difficult text that we just read is that it begins in verse 18 of chapter 4. Last week, we read that verse, but I want to read it again to you so that you get the full thought. Verse 18 of chapter 4 says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, instead... Be filled with the Spirit. Now, here's what you need to know. Instead, be filled with the Spirit is the beginning of one sentence in the original Greek, one sentence that goes all the way through to verse 21 here in Ephesians 5. I think I said 4 earlier. We're still in Ephesians 5. From verse 18 all the way to verse 21, one sentence. So let's read it to understand what he was saying. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now he's going to expound on what that looks like. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit, he goes on to say, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Being with the, filled with the Spirit, he goes on to say in verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, same sentence, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You need to understand this. Everything that Paul is about to tell us that a Christ-exalting home looks like, the more that God wants to give you in your family, all of it is built on this foundation that those in the home are full of the Spirit of Jesus. That you're full of the Spirit. He said, look, this is what you're to do as the people of God. You're to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit, you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This isn't a a self-help marriage seminar. This works through Spirit-empowered believers. There's two words in verse 21 that I believe are some of the most important words in this entire text. Look at verse 21 with me. The two words are out of, out of. Submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. Now, can I just state the obvious and say to all the married folks, your attitude towards your spouse is gonna come out of somewhere. It, it, might, it might come out of anger. It might come out of frustration. It might come from a place of, of, of vindictive, manipulative, vengeful place. It might be pride. It might be self centered. It's coming from somewhere. We all know that. Sometimes you're just hangry, you know? That's when you're hungry, angry. You just need a snack. But it's coming from somewhere. Paul said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So total submission to Jesus as the Lord of my life is the fountainhead that a healthy marriage flows out of. It is the fountainhead. I mean, it's coming from somewhere. My attitude, my actions, they're coming from some source. But if I wake up every day and I live my life completely surrendered to Jesus and I say, not my will, but your will be done in my life my attitude and my actions, all of it I place on the altar and I'm in covenant with someone else with that same conviction. That is the foundation and the flow of a healthy, life-giving, Christ-altering marriage. And it's more than marriage. This statement is really the umbrella for every relationship that Paul is gonna talk about in the home. But let's just stay with marriage for a moment. Let's look a little closer at he calls us to. Verse 22, again, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, let me just say, again, what. We're looking at, this passage is about a Christian wife and a Christian husband, and it's directly related to the relational dynamics that take place in the home. Now, this is where a lot of people twist the word of God. He's not talking about the relational dynamics in the workplace. He's not talking about the relational dynamics in politics. He's not even talking about the relational dynamics in ministry, in the church. What he's talking about is that God has an ordained way for a marriage to work in a family home. Let me just say a couple of things that need to be said today. Number one, it's very clear from Scripture, there is no inequality with God. We can look at phrases like we see in the text here about headship, And we can start to think in terms of a hierarchy that one person is higher or superior to another. Listen, the Bible is very clear. There is no inequality with God. First of all, it's proven in creation. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, both of them in the image of God. He didn't create one in a greater image and one in a lesser image. How many of you know that God didn't create Eve from the bottom of Adam's foot? He didn't take her off the top of his head either. He took her from a rib. She was from his side and close to his heart. She was a perfect companion, equally suitable to each other from the very beginning. Creation communicates that. We also see it, to an even greater degree in Christ himself. The Bible says in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. That's that barrier wall of hostility that Ephesians two talked about, that we are of one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. We're all one in Christ. Now, now, culturally, that's rarely seen, but in the kingdom of God, he's saying you're all one. You're equal in Christ, and I would add to that that it's even more significant to us because we are a spirit-filled body of believers. The Bible says on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 16 to 18, that Peter stood up and he preached on the day of Pentecost, full of the Spirit, he said, this, that you're seeing, is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he began to quote the Old Testament prophet, saying, in the last days, I shall pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So not only is there equality in creation and in Christ, but in the Spirit, we are one, equally, qualified, and capable to exercise our giftings and our abilities. So what is Paul talking about? Paul is presenting men and women in an ordered equality, not not to where there's superiority or inferiority, but simply different roles different responsibilities one theologian said it like this he said equality of worth is not equality of role what he's saying is this husbands you are called to be the spiritual leader in your house that's your role doesn't make you more doesn't make you less it's your role it's the the responsibility that god has given you to be the spiritual leader of your family. And a perfect picture of what this looks like is the Trinity. When you look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of them fully God, equally God, and yet unique in their responsibility. Jesus is fully God, and yet he is submitted to the Father. So much so that he could say not my will but your will be done. This is God speaking. The God-man, Jesus, but he submitted to the Father. So in the same way, equality and submissiveness can coexist in relationships. Equality and submissiveness can coexist in relationships. So th- this is what it looks like when, when the church submits to Jesus. Do we lose our Our gifting, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, do we lose our opportunities to serve? Are we restricted? No, when we submit ourselves to Jesus, the more we come under his lordship, the more free we are to do what he's called us to do and to be who he's called us to be. And that's the picture that we see in a Christian marriage, that the more we are submitted to one another, the more empowered we are. No no single Christian lady should lose her gifting and ministry and ability because she marries a Christian young man. No, all of her gifts, all of her abilities should be emphasized and, and elevated because we're perfect partners in Christ. Equal roles are equal value, different roles. So how does this work today? I mean, it's 2018. And some people would just read that and they go that that's archaic. I mean, that, that doesn't apply... Today, what is, what is this stuff about husbands or the head? What does it look like for us today? I'll tell you what it looks like is exactly what Paul intended it to look like in the first century. Let's pull away from, from the cultural models and let's just lean in to what God is saying. And what God is saying is, men, you're called to be the spiritual leader in your home, but the position you're called to is servant leadership. It's servant leadership look at verse 23 the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior now he could have said he's the leader he's the teacher he's the authority he could have said he's even the Lord and Jesus is all those things but men you're not so he said You're the head as Christ is the Savior. What was he saying? There's three types of love we have here that he says, this is what God has called men to in the marriage relationship. The first one is sacrificial love. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Jesus love the church? He died for her. Sacrificial love says, I I am willing to go all the way To death for you. I would lay down my life for you. That's sacrificial love. Jesus said this He said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's that's the high standard that he has set for us to come up under. So, men, hear me today. If you're married or if you plan to get married, you may be the king of your house, but you are a servant king. A servant king in the footsteps of Jesus. Sacrificial love also means that you pray for your bride. The Bible says that Jesus sits at the right hand of God and he ever lives to make intercession for his church, his bride. Sacrificial love also means that that you're attentive to her needs. The same way that Jesus is attentive to the needs of the church. Did you know that Jesus actually rejoices in your presence today? He's not tolerating you right now. Isn't that nice to know that the Bible says he delights in the praises of his people? That he's not like, oh, I, gotta, you know, I got so much going on up here. I got this incredible heavenly choir singing. I'm sorry, these pitiful vocalists want to sing a song for me. It's Sunday. I'll be back. No, he delights in our praises. We have a song that not even the angels can sing. We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus. He delights in us. The Bible says in Hebrews that that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Do you know what the joy was that he was looking forward to? It was you. It was us. Jesus didn't just come out of heaven so he could live and die and rise again and go back to heaven. No, he did all that so that we could be with him. He longs for your company, for your praise, for your prayers. He adores you. You are the joy that was set before him. And it's a high calling that he says, men, love your wives the way that Christ loves the church. He thought you were worth dying for. The Bible says in Proverbs 31, verse 10, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is worth far more than than rubies. There's value, he was saying, in a wife of noble character. Finally, sacrificial love means faithful devotion. It just means faithfully committed. We serve a God who's faithful. Aren't you thankful that the word says even when we are unfaithful, still he is faithful. He's still faithful to us. Can I just remind all of us that marriage is, is not a conditional bargain that we got into. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. A contract says, let me read all of the fine print, and I'll sign the back page once I've read and initialed here and checked the box there, and, and now I'll sign it because I know what's in it. Covenant signs the front page before it even opens it, for better or for worse. Sickness or health, richer or poorer. I don't know what's in there, but I'm I'm in covenant. I'm just going to sign the top copy and live it out faithfully. That's sacrificial love. There's another kind of love he calls us to, and that is sanctifying love. Look at verse 26. Again, he's not talking about men right here. He's talking about what Jesus has done in loving the church. Verse 26 says, to make her holy. He gave himself up to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What he's talking about is justification. Now, that's a big Bible word, but he's saying that when Jesus looks at his bride, the church, he sees her without fault blameless, pure, holy, spotless, dressed in white, the same way that you saw your bride when they opened the back doors of the church. That's the way that Jesus sees us. Now, the truth is he can see right through us, and he knows we're not blameless, we're not faultless, and we might be dressed in white on the outside, but he knows the darkness that lives in our heart, but he chooses to see us that way. Why? Because the Bible says we are justified in Christ which means when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see all your faults, he doesn't see all your failures, all your shortcomings, all your inadequacies, all the times you said you were and you didn't, all the times you said you would and you didn't. He looks at you just as if you had never blown it. He says, you're spotless, you're holy, you're blameless. And the call to men is to love our wives like Christ loves the church. You know what he's saying? He's saying, no matter... How much she's burnt the dinner, no matter how many times she forgot to, you know, wash your clothes for work, no matter how many times she got on your nerves, look at her like you looked at that bride that came through the back doors of the church. Spotless, holy. I know you're not, but I see you as you are. I I know you don't always measure up, but in in my heart, you do. I choose to live like you do because Jesus chooses to live like we do. That's why he can still receive our praise today, because he looks past all the things that disqualifies us, and he says, you're justified. You can come in. You can drink of the cup. You're justified. There's a third kind of love that we're called to, and it's self-love. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says, in this same way, husbands, you ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the golden rule of marriage. Love your wife as yourself. That's what he's saying. This is self-love. Love your wife as yourself you know what that means and this isn't easy but that means you have to be sensitive to her moods you have to be sensitive to her needs to the nonverbal communication which I wish they would have taught in high school (laughs) which saved me a lot of heartache I don't know I don't know what that look I don't know what that means Means you give her the five star treatment. Means you say why why? Because that that's what you want. Because that's the way you want to be treated. Because you assume that she knows when you've had a bad day, and vice versa. And he and he's saying self love. Self love. Love your wife like you love yourself. Then verse 31, he he tethers this to God's command. In the Old Testament, this is a quotation, verse 31 says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's why you love your spouse the way you love yourself, because in marriage, the two of you have become one. If you've been married for any length of time, you know this already. If your spouse is miserable, how many of you know you're miserable? right? There's a lot of wisdom in that old adage, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) Love your wife like you love yourself, he says. And then I love the next verse. Verse 32 says, this is a profound mystery. And all the married (laughs) folks said, amen, (laughs) right? This is a profound mystery. And then he says this. He says, but I'm talking about Christ." and the church. And by saying, I'm talking about Christ in the church, Paul starts pulling us back into his main thought. I mean, he just unpacked a whole lot of truth, but he doesn't want us to lose perspective on what he's talking about, how we live a spirit-filled life, and out of that, we submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. And so he pulls us back to this thought. I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, Paul wants us to understand today that there is more glory for God to be had in your marriage. There's more Glory for God to be had in your relationship. And ultimately, that relationship lives on the earth today for one purpose, to bring glory and honor to God in heaven. That's it. To be a living witness. There is no greater testimony in all the earth of Christ's love for the church than when a man and a woman make a covenant, no strings attached, and they stick to that covenant till death do they part. No greater witness in all the earth. It's the first and oldest covenant God ever established. It's older than the church. Marriage. It's his love for his bride. Genesis begins with it. Revelation ends with it. A wedding. Christ is coming back for a bride. And your marriage is for his glory even more. he's not done so he he goes to another relationship he says not only is it husband and wife but this is fleshed out with parents and children again he's talking about how God is receiving glory in our homes how the gospel impacts our daily lives so look at chapter 6 now verse 1 children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right I love that verse I like it more the older I get I hated that verse at one time, but I love that it says it's right. Like, this is natural law. Like, this isn't, this isn't church. This is just right. <laughs> I mean, in any society, in any religion, he's saying, look, this is just the way it is. It's right. It's understood that parents are the authority, that the children are subjected to that authority. You know, when, when parents say, look, it's your bedtime. Go to bed. We just don't expect that kids are going to say, well, it's your bedtime too, so you go to bed. (laughs) If that's normal in your house, talk to me after service. We'll set up an appointment. (laughs) This is right. Children, obey your parents. But then he says it's not only natural law, it's divine law. And so in the next verse, he quotes one of the Ten Commandments. It says in verse 2, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. He's saying not only is it right naturally, but God has commanded this. God's commanded this, and it's going to affect how long you live your life. (laughs) Honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you. But then he does something that's just astounding, especially to this culture where women and slaves and children were essentially treated like property. He says something that absolutely arrests the attention of his readers in verse four. He says, fathers, and this could be translated parent. It's the same. Parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, let me just unpack this for a minute. He's saying that this, first of all, this is practical. Parents, bring your children up to receive training and instruction. If your kids are going to get training and instruction, how many of you know they need boundaries? They need to have boundaries. And he's saying, train them up, but make sure you bring them up in the Lord. See, that's a key. A lot of people set the boundaries, but they don't bring them up in it. They push them down under it. And he said, no, bring them up. Encourage them in it. Don't beat them down and berate them with instruction. In other words, what he's saying, don't exasperate your children. He's saying, don't be so rigid that they become overwhelmed with unnecessary demands. Have the boundaries so that they can know what is fair and what is foul, what is in play and what is not. Have the boundaries, but give them the freedom to be their own unique person within those boundaries. Give them boundaries, not footprints. See, we exasperate our children when we become so analytical and so detailed and so specific that they can't even thrive in the personality that God gave them. They're not you. Amen? Amen. And so, what he's saying is give them boundaries that they can be raised up in those and become the child of God that God intended them to be. See, there's a difference between having behavioral rules and trying to make your kids think your thoughts. They're not going to think your thoughts. They're not like you, and the perfect picture for us is is our relationship with God. Aren't you glad that God doesn't assign us to be the exact same? Any of you that have multiple kids, you can can nod two times because you know your kids are all different. I mean, you get one, and you think you got this parent thing figured out, and wow, God surprises you with number two, and they are nothing like the other one, and nothing that you thought was going to work. You're like, forget it. I'm glad I didn't write that book. I was like, all out the window, and God's that way with us. In fact, one of my favorite verses, Psalms 119, 32 says this, I run in the path, in the boundaries of your commands, for you have set my heart free, or you have broadened my understanding. In other words, he's saying, because there's, there's guardrails, because I understand right and wrong, and I know what your will is for my life, there's freedom in that. I can run in that. I'm not hemmed in by it. I'm liberated through it. Let me just encourage you parents, make rules, but then live by them. Don't move the boundary markers. Kids need to know what the parameters are, but we need to bring them up in that. We need to bring them up. Paul is saying, he's saying, don't exasperate your children, and he's saying that, even though that's shocking to the hearers, he's saying that to emphasize the point of spirit-filled submission. To one another. And I know this might sound mind blowing, but Paul is actually saying sometimes not only do children need to submit to their parents, not only do wives need to submit to their husbands, but yes, husbands need to submit to their wives, and yes, sometimes parents need to submit to their children. Now that doesn't mean they make the rules, it doesn't mean we change the roles. Mutual equality, differing roles. I'll always be the parent in my house as long as my kids live under my roof. But he's saying that there's a mutual submissiveness that I don't have to micromanage everything in their life. Sometimes I have to just submit to the way I would do it to allow them to be who God made them to be so that they can run in the freedom of God's commands. Does that make sense? So then he gives us one more example. This is the last one. Look at verse five with me. This time it's the example of Slaves and masters. He says, slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you, each one for whatever Good they do, whether they are slave or free. Now, keep in mind the context. Paul's talking about family. So what he's talking about here are the servants that actually lived and served in the home. Talking about those that are a part of the house. Now, he's not trying to rewrite culture. They lived in a day and in an age when it was slavery was a part of the social system. And so he's not writing this to denounce slavery. What he's writing is to show us how a spirit-filled Christian home thrives regardless of the culture, regardless of the culture. Now, now we know because of this elevating of equality and the, the, the honor that Christianity has brought to man, we've seen slavery abolished in, in societies all over the world thanks to Christianity. But that's not Paul's intent here. What he's saying, it, it, it could apply to us as employers and employees. Those that, those that you're under and those that are under you. He's saying in this relational dynamic, there's some things that we need to understand. And he says something so incredible to the servant, to the employee. Verse 7, he said, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people. That's a challenge. And you can ask yourself if you're doing that or not By just simply taking this assessment, do you start working harder and looking busier when your manager walks in than you were before? Because if you do, you're just trying to please them when they're there instead of serving the Lord. But if the attitude is that I want to serve the Lord, whether I'm at the top of the totem pole or the bottom, whether I'm the new guy in the company or if I'm the CEO. I'm doing this to serve the Lord, so I'm gonna do it with everything I have. I'm gonna give it all in my heart, not as unto people who may or may not see me, but unto the Lord. And then he says, why? Because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good you do. And then he makes an incredible statement here at the end of verse nine. He says, whether they are slave or free. And again, it's like a, like a bomb that goes off. Because Paul is saying this doesn't just apply to the slave, whether you're slave or free. This applies to both of you, slave and master. Why? Because he's not talking about authority and who's in charge and who has to submit. He's talking about a spirit-filled submission that permeates the family of God. And so then he gives very specific instruction in verse 9 to the master's. He says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. That doesn't mean treat all your slaves the same way. He means treat them the way I just told them to treat you. Treat them the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Paul is saying doesn't matter if you're in charge or not. None of you are the authority. So don't, don't take a, a position of hierarchy and I'm up here and you're down there, whether it's parenting or whether it's with an employee or whether it's with your spouse. Jesus is saying, look, the one who's in charge of all of you sits on a throne far higher than you. And he's going to reward you according, according to your actions. And so in husbands and wives and children and parents and employees and employers, every relationship in the body of Christ, what he's saying is this. It's radically impacted and shifted and changed by spirit-filled submission to one another. And when the family lives that way, there's more glory to God than you could ever imagine, exceedingly and abundantly, more than you could ask or imagine. Why? Because we're filled with the Spirit of God, and out of that flows submission, out of our reverence to Christ. Now, in the last portion of Ephesians 6, to the end of the letter, he begins to talk about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Now, last year, we did a whole like four weeks just on that section, so I'm not even going to try to jump into it today, but I do want to draw your attention to something here in verse 10. He says, finally, you this is like the preacher saying, in conclusion, after everything that I've said about the impact that the gospel has on your life and on your relationships and on your gifting and on your conduct and on culture, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And Paul, he's writing this from a Roman prison. He's chained to a guard that's on rotation. And I can just imagine that, that Paul looks over and he sees this guard as he's writing the letter to the Ephesians. And he begins to look at the way he's dressed in all of those fatigues of the day. And in the same way that that soldier is is equipped, Paul starts thinking about all the resources and all the equipment that we have in Christ. As he says, put on the full armor of God. And so he starts saying, put on the belt, like he has a belt. Put on the belt of truth. And put on the breastplate of righteousness and have your feet shod with the gospel of peace and put on the helmet of your salvation and take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. And he begins to outfit The body of Christ, for what? He's already said, we're not wrestling a physical battle, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. No, he says at the end down in verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, prayer, He's saying it's a spiritual battle and it's got to be fought with spiritual weapons. So, having seen all that the gospel can do, finally, finally, be strong in the Lord. Listen, I've talked about a lot of relationships today and I don't know what's going on in your life individually, but the word of the Lord is be strong in the Lord. The truth is, you might be here today and say, you know what? It's not working. It's not working with my kids. It's not working with my boss or with my manager. It's not working with my employees. It's not working in my marriage or my engagement. It's not working, and I can't fix it, and the truth is, I would say amen. You can't, but be strong in the Lord. That's one of Paul's favorite phrases all throughout this book, in the Lord, in Christ. That's how he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that you could ask or imagine. It's according to his power that is at work in them that believe. So I would say to you today, regardless of what you might be facing, be strong in the Lord. I want to pray for you today, and I want to ask you if you would stand with me all across this room. We're just going to make an altar right where we stand before the Lord. He's here in this place. He knows what you're facing in your life. He knows what I'm facing in mine, and I can promise you today, he wants to do more than you think. He wants to do more than you might even think to ask. He wants to do more than you might even imagine. That's what he said in his word. And he's going to do it according to his power that is at work in them that believe. So There's only one question today. Do you believe? Do you believe in his mighty power. Father, today, all over this room, you see the hearts, the lives. You see the tangled webs of relationships. God, you see the struggles, the uncertainty, the questions. You've seen the failed attempts. And yet, God, here we stand again with nothing but faith. And we declare today, I believe. I believe, God, that you are more than able to do exceedingly and abundantly, immeasurably more than all that I could ask or even imagine that you could do, not according to my efforts, not according to my ingenuity, not according to my resources, but according to your power that is at work within me. So God, right now, we invite your Holy Spirit to work in us. Begin to work right now. Come on, if there's an area of your life where you just need God to just intervene, you just need God to move, right where you stand, would you just begin to lift your hands toward heaven and just ask him, say, God, would you work right now? God, work in my life, work in my relationships, work in my home. God, let more of your glory be evidenced in my home. God, let the atmosphere be shifted from a place of strife to a place of peace from a place of discord to a place of unity. God, in my workplace, do more. God, let your spirit flow through me. Lord, help me to not live with an attitude of meeting in the middle or going halfway in my marriage. God, give me the heart like Jesus that, that demonstrates a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, a love that says, I love you like I love myself. God, today, pour your spirit out on your sons and daughters. More grace to the church so that there might be more glory to the king. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Can we just give God praise for his word today? Amen.